Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest is Andrew Bolt, partner at Deloitte. He joins Emerge CEO and Head of Research Daniel Fagella on today's podcast to talk about the challenges in R&D for life sciences. While productivity has remained stagnant for the last 10 to 15 years, advances in AI-enhanced protein structure prediction are revolutionizing drug targeting and the very infrastructure of recruiting patients for clinical trials. Later, the two postulate on the ways that AI can expedite regulatory compliance in pharmaceutical R&D in similar ways. Today's episode is sponsored by Deloitte, and without further ado, here's their conversation. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dan. Yeah. We've got a ton to unpack, and we're focused on an area that some of our longtime listeners here at Emerge will be more than familiar with, the domain of R&D in life sciences. Use cases galore with this big new wave of Gen AI and plenty of other applications. Before we get there, you've lived in this space for a long time. You've followed kind of the current trends and challenges. There's all sorts of dynamics happening within the pharma field. If you were to define those bigger trends and challenges right now for R&D leadership, what are those? What's kind of defining the the mindset in the industry? Yeah, I think the big the big challenge in R and D, and it's been it's been a challenge for the last ten to fifteen years, is that R and D productivity has remained um, very stagnant and and very low. You know, the often cited metrics for 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 R and D are that it takes over two billion dollars to bring a drug to market, and the success rate from going from you know discovering a potential new drug to actually getting approval hovers around ten percent. At Deloitte, we publish a, a, an R&D IRR report every year, and the internal rate of return for you know, pharma company portfolios has has remained in the low single digits every single year for the for the last ten years that we've been doing the report. So it's pretty it's pretty dire. Okay, got it. So generally, productivity the big issue here. Are people aware that that is getting worse, or are they just less and less satisfied with the fact that it is as low as it stands? Um, I think everyone, everyone in the R and D you know, function within pharmaceutical companies is well aware of this, and they're under a lot of pressure to bend that curve of productivity. The challenge is, is like biology is incredibly complex, right? It's like you you don't know what a drug's going to do until you put it in a human body, and and because of the complexity of biology, it's you know can be often very difficult to sort of discern you know, how a, dr- a drug might work and, you know, how safe it's going to be before then. Has there been additional felt sense of pressure with COVID? There was so much demand to like, we got to get something through, we've got to solve this issue. And I felt like the, the, the urgency jump on coming up with something that could work in the real world was at a an industry-wide level that was quite pronounced. Did that have any hangover in terms of mindsets, mentalities, or does that not so much factor into, let's say, the 2024 headspace of leadership? Yeah, I think I think COVID helped sort of reveal the art of the possible that that what could be done, right? You know, Pfizer and Moderna were able to do in developing those uh, vaccines in such a short amount of time. Um, simply, simply amazing, and it was it was incredibly impactful. Is it it really because of the because of the situation that COVID placed us in? It really forced biopharma companies to. Uh, apply sort of digital innovations and AI to make that process work faster, right? And it was out of necessity. And so I think that sort of 
change the the sort of perspective in pharma companies where they were just kind of like maybe dabbling with some digital tools in the clinical space to really sort of saying we need to we need to like you know forcefully apply these tools to really you know make a difference in this like really important moment and so I think it I think it really helped uh, accelerate a lot of the digital transformations within pharma companies. Cool. So some lingering effect there from I like the idea of the art of the possible. If we can hustle that much before, why are we satisfied with the status quo now? Uh, yeah. Sort of sort of shift in mindset. To that point, I mean this this spills us a little bit into the world of actual use cases, and there's so much surface area to cover here. I mean, you were talking about the challenge of having to put something in a human body. There's the whole ecosystem of simulating biology. Uh, there's so many different elements to the drug discovery world. I know you wanted to walk through drug discovery, clinical, and regulatory. All three are going to be relevant for the audience here. Maybe we could start with drug discovery, and you could speak to maybe what's gaining traction today and what you think is going to be most crucial for leadership. Yeah, I think, you know, just going back to something I said before, like biology is incredibly complex and patients' diseases are incredibly complex. And, you know, two patients that, you know, might have the same disease in name could have very different diseases when I, when you get down to a molecular level, right? And so, you know, we've, we've for a long time operated in sort of a definition of disease that's sort of divide, you know, defined by sort of a, you know, tissue of origin. And, now that there's not now that we have AI and we have so much data, right? Just an incredible amount of data that's being created in the life sciences. We have now access to clinical data due to the sort of advent of EMRs. We've got, you know, genomic data and proteomic data. We've got access to imaging data. And I think now that we have AI, there's an ability to take all that data. In the industry, it's often called multimodal data. We have the ability to take all that data and redefine disease, right? Create finer patient segments that have more homogenous disease that has driver biology that these companies can go after. So I think that's a big opportunity that a lot of pharmaceutical companies are really interested in. I think the challenge there is that um, connecting all that data together, right? So like trying to create that 360 degree view of a patient you know, what does their genome look like? What is, the, what is the, you know, clinical phenotype? What, you know, what do their images look like, et cetera. Knitting all that data together so that you can then analyze it at scale is, is, a, is a very heavy lift. And so I think there's a big opportunity there. When it comes to like, so, so hopefully once, you know, you, you, you sort of do a more sort of finite segmentation of patient disease, then you get down to like, what targets are we going to go after, right? And the work that's been done by, by AlphaFold to help predict protein structures and now even be able to, to uh, under, better understand how certain ligands and, and molecules might interact with those structures uh, really opens up a lot of possibilities for helping to simulate and generate hypotheses around what potential candidate drugs might bind to that target. Right, and I think that's gonna that's gonna yield uh, tremendous productivity improvements in the drug discovery space. You know, I don't think it's gonna be the the the, the be all end all solution, but certainly it can help uh, a chemist you know quickly prioritize uh, what molecules to go after. Right, and then you know finally, I think you know over time, you're, there's so much data they they're gonna be able to build models where they can say not only I want you know, give me a molecule that binds to this target in this way, 
but they're also going to say like that has these, they're going to be able to ask a model, you know, what, you know, give me a molecule that has these drug-like characteristics, right? Has these kind of pharmacokinetics, has you know, this kind of safety profile, et cetera. And over time, I think the hope is eventually once, you know, once those molecules go through the development, they go in clinic and you create this feedback loop and you start learning from your clinical successes and failures and be able to fine tune the models to, you know, incorporate that information, then you create a real sort of powerful sort of learning system for drug discovery that can be like incredibly beneficial. Yeah, I think in many regards, this has been the golden dream for the last half a decade of, hey, I'm working on treating this symptom, let's say. What, what, do, what do we have for evidence of other compounds dealing with this symptom or elements of someone's genome that might affect this symptom or this protein or whatever the case may be? And being able to sort of leverage the whole corpus of everything we've ever worked on to say, have we already almost solved this? You know, has this, have, we, have we collected two or three data points that might literally help us stop shooting at new targets and just land somewhere where maybe we've already done the work? But as you brought up, easier said than done. That's going to be knitting together a lot of data. You use the word knitting there. Th that's going to be setting ourselves up in a, a totally different position in terms of being able to, to marshal and coax forth all of that info. What are people doing to get started on that now? Because it almost feels like, man, where do I even begin? You know, do I, do I begin with all my historical lab notes on molecules? Do I begin with, you know, organizing patient data and letting that ontology kind of define and trickle its way down? What have you seen smart folks think through to start to eat that elephant? Because I think the vision's compelling, but by golly, that's a big one. Yeah, so, I, so, so in, in terms of the multimodal data journey, you know, I, we're starting to see clients sort of knit together just two types of data, right? Like, can we, can we knit together real-world data with, you know, genomic data, right? And sort of just try to tackle that problem. Or can we figure out, uh, A, what clinical trial data we have proper consent to use, and then take that data and marry it up with real-world data, for instance, right? And so they're, 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 they're starting and just like, can we just figure out two, two modes of data? Um, and even that's proven to be, you know, a, a pretty heavy lift. So that's that's sort of the, the the key thing there. When it comes to the use cases I described around like you know protein interactions and modeling around you know what molecules might bind to a specific target protein, you know those those tools are open source and clients are already starting to use those. I mean, it's been pretty amazing that that you know AlphaFolds just made that readily available, and so you're already yeah. seeing clients sort of use that tools as a way to sort of you know help them prioritize, help them you know predict you know, certain molecules that, 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 you know, may, may sort of have those, those, uh, those binding properties that they desire. Got it. Hopefully some tidbits for getting started and eating, eating that elephant for the audience that's tuned in. And I guess this starts to take us naturally into the, the clinical side of the mix where there's a whole nother ecosystem of, you know, a, a, a future state of the normal and different kinds of ways to bring data to life and have AI or gen AI add value in new ways. We've seen a ton here, but I'd love to have your vantage point of what leaders should be thinking about or, or what you're seeing traction with in the field around clinical. Yeah, I mean, the biggest sort of, the, the biggest chunk of time in in the development of a, of a new drug is certainly, you know, the, the, cl the clinical trials piece. And um, the most difficult challenge that you know, clients face within within clinical development is obviously patient recruitment, right? 
there's an often cited statistic that, you know, 5% or less of, of eligible patients actually participate, participate in trials. And so you're already, you're already like, you know, starting from a, from a, from a very difficult place. Yeah. And, and so, you know, finding those patients, you know, understanding which sites might, might be successful in, in recruiting those patients and enrolling those patients in trial and then seeing them through continues to be an incredibly, uh, an incredibly difficult challenge for, for our clients. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're trying to use, you know, real world data, for instance. So this is data that's clinical data that's, you know, created outside the context of a clinical trial, you know, de-identified EMR data, for instance, using that data to try to better pinpoint where patients might be. Right. Um, and then trying to marry that with their historical experience with working with specific sites to say, you know, do we have sites that we know have been particularly good recruiters um, that also have patients that we've identified from our real world data sets? And can we can we use that to, to be a little bit more targeted when it comes to our you know, patient recruitment strategy? The other thing is, you know, one of the one of the things that makes clinical trials incredibly complex is that. Oftentimes, companies, you know, design a protocol for a clinical trial, and they, within the protocol, there are these inclusion-exclusion criteria that basically tell you what kind of patients can and can't participate in the trial, right? And sometimes they de they define those inclusion-exclusion criteria so narrowly that it makes it especially difficult to find uh, the patients that they need. And so what ends up happening is then they have to amend the protocol and there's all these sort of downstream effects of that. You have to change lots of things about the trial, et cetera, to, 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 you know, align with that new protocol. And that often creates a lot of delays. One of the things that, 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 that clients are trying to build out right now is more protocol feasibility tools that allow you to simulate uh, what happens when you change those inclusion exclusion criteria um, so you can better understand when you're writing that protocol, you know, your potential to actually recruit the patients, right? The other thing I'll say is that, you know, there's, and I sort of just alluded to this in my, my last comment, the protocol is sort of the key document in clinical development that drives sort of that, that's, that's sort of the design of the trial and it drives, you know, how you think about, generating data for the trial and analyzing data for the trial and, you know, creating a regulatory submission, et cetera. And it's a key document, but, but in today's sort of pharmaceutical world, those documents are not necessarily linked, right? The protocol is not sort of necessarily directly linked to all the downstream documents. And so there's a lot of sort of iteration and rework and, um, manual effort associated with any change that comes in that in that protocol document, and so clients are you know thinking about ways in which they can use AI to help not only build those protocols in a smarter way, but also you know more dynamically sort of update all the associated uh, documentation that goes along in a clinical trial that's that that that's anchored on that protocol. And, and certainly, you know, generative AI is a big piece of, you know, being able to taking those sort of what, what is now a very manual process of, you know, creating the documentation and being able to generate, you know, smart draft, smart first drafts based on historical, uh, you know, protocols or, or, or associated clinical trial documents. And so that's a really big potential area. Got it. Yeah. Obviously, the, the 
the time required if a human being were to start reading at the front and go to the back of, of these giant documents is ungodly. Uh, and you can only imagine what it takes to carefully craft each one of those paragraphs, because we're talking about a lot of regulatory stuff here, right? This, this isn't a really rough draft that we can just whip together. We've seen folks that, you know, have their trepidations around hallucination and kind of accuracy for these sort of systems. What do you see as some of the ways that Gen, Gen AI might be bounded to generate drafts that people feel safe to use? Like, hey, cool, you know, um, I think this is actually really going to help me and, and not conjure things that might sort of get in my way. Yeah, so the, so no question, uh, you know, drug drug development is a highly regulated process and there are, you know, rules categorized as good clinical practice that you have to adhere to, whether you're doing things manually or whether you're utilizing AI to help move things along quicker or do things in a, in a smarter way. It, you know, and I think that particularly when it comes to generative AI, but I would say with all AI, particularly in these spaces where like so much is at stake, right? Developing a medicine, like you just got to get it right. Oh, yeah. There always has to be human in the loop, right? I don't think it, particularly in R&D, we're going to, you know, see it anytime soon, you know, where AI is just doing its thing and no one is sort of checking at the end of that AI output to make sure it's, you know, adhering to the quality that you want and it's like, you know, up to snuff. So, 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 you know, hopefully we, we continue to see, you know, clients, you know, basically design these systems with human and loop in mind to make sure that they don't, that these things don't go awry. The other thing about AI is that, you know, you develop a, an AI model at a certain point in time under a certain context, right? With, with data that's available at that time and context changes, right? And so, models drift and their outputs drift and you know that's another important reason that you know when you put models in production to do things you got to make sure that you're monitoring that output and and if things are starting to drift that you take those you know sort of corrective actions to retrain the model and get it back to where you want it to be in terms of the regulatory function itself this yeah, is a yeah. this, this is a function where there's a lot of manual documentation work, right? You have medical writers that are actually, you know, writing these documents. Many of our of our clients, you know, they don't just submit a, a drug application and maintain their licenses in one country. They do it in, you know, hundreds of countries, right? And so that means that you're you have to each country has its own set of regulations that you have to sort of fit those documents into, right? And make sure you're adhering to those specific country requirements. But then you also have translations involved, right? And, you know, companies spend a lot of money on those translations, et cetera. And so, you know, generative AI, I think is, is uh, you know, particularly suited towards transforming regulatory for those reasons, right? It's like you can create, quickly create first drafts of documents. You can, you can do translation. You can build in rules around, you know, the the, the the certain country specific requirements. I think this is a space that's going to be significantly transformed by generative AI. Regulate just the regulatory function writ large. The regulatory function writ large within pharmaceutical R and D organizations. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. And you know, you're you're bringing up the the translation element. Uh, I think you know, to your point about human in the loop. I know that translating, you know, a, a novel about a child that makes a rowboat would be a different level of hurdle than all of the very funky jargon 
of life sciences processes that I'm sure are equally funky when we translate them. This is sort of part of what I digested there. Let me make sure I'm picking up what you're putting down. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that there, there are sort of your more generalist model, you know, large language models that have been trained on the internet, basically, right? Like GPT, et cetera. And then you're seeing more specialized models like MedPalm that are being trained on medical language. And I think the interesting thing is like those models are starting to reach sort of, you know, similar performance. And, and I'm not sure they know why, but it, it's very interesting. But I think regardless, there are some very technical specifications that are, you know, that are sort of built into what pharmaceutical R&D organizations do and what regulators do that will likely require some fine tuning of those models. So you can, you know, make sure that you're not, you know, too general about and, and, and too high level about what you're, you know, those documents that you're trying to produce. Yeah. And, and part of regulatory is this sort of compliance across language. And there are also so many other general just, just elements of regulatory. We've, we've heard people talk about using AI to kind of drink in data and information about new regulation that's getting pushed through so we can make sure we stay ahead of everything and we don't get nipped by something that you know, we weren't aware yeah. of. There, there's a lot of other sorts of ideas that get bandied about. Anything else on regulatory that for you could be useful for, for leadership to consider or anything that you're starting to see some traction on that seems really promising for you? Yeah, I think there's a there's a large opportunity in what is being coined regulatory intelligence. And so like you alluded to, you know, being able to in real time understand, you know, new regulations that 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 have come out, utilizing all, you know, a company's historical data and information, how they've engaged with regulators, how regulators have responded to their, you know, their, their submissions and their and answers to their questions, and utilizing that large corpus of data to just get much smarter about how you engage with regulators, right? Understanding sort of the, your, what risk appetite you can have in terms of how you respond to that regulator, you know, understanding what issues are particularly important to them and even getting to a place where you can be uh, more proactive in your responses or anticipating what questions might come um, from certain regulators. Uh, I think there's a really, really huge opportunity there. Moving from reactive to proactive with AI in this regard. Yeah, correct. Got it. Well, in closing here, we've got a couple different ideas on the table. We've talked about trends and challenges that probably everybody in life sciences tuned in is on some level feeling. Many listeners are sort of, and many, even the larger pharma companies, still we could say are kind of in the nascent stages of adopting this stuff, right? It's safe to say R&D for drugs has not been revolutionized yet by AI, but we're moving ourselves in that direction and there's certainly need for change. If you, you know, when you speak to leaders who are beginning the journey of AI adoption, is there any advice you'd want to leave them with that could be helpful? Uh, as we wrap up the episode. Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things come to mind. I think obviously in in pharmaceutical R&D, like having real domain depth is critically important as you think about applying you know, technologies like AI. And so, you know, I think having people that speak both of those languages, right, someone that really knows regulatory, regulatory and also understands uh, AI can make a tremendous difference. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's tough in this, you know, highly complex, highly technical space 
to, um, you know, just pull sort of you know, generalists in and have them be incredibly impactful. I think it's important to have those sort of bilingual folks to, uh, to, to, to really engage with the business and get them to understand, you know, the, the art of the possible and how AI might, might you know, transform what they do. The other thing is, I think, you know, there's, 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 there's the building of the AI solutions, but I think you have to kind of, it's, what's really important is you have to bring people along, right? I think AI can be a very scary thing for people. And so I think you have to, yeah, I think you have to paint a vision for how do you see AI helping an R&D organization get, get medicines to patients faster, helping employees, you know, do their jobs better and freeing up their time from doing sort of very rote manual work to allowing them to focus on, you know, sort of higher order activities. I think you really have to paint that picture and, and, and train people on what AI is and what is not and the risks associated, et cetera. You got to bring them along that journey so that when you do build a solution, they're, they're prepared and they're willing to change their ways of working to, 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 to really sort of drive that intended impact that you had from the outset. Yeah. The, uh, the culture change side of things have from day one of, uh, of enterprise AI been astronomically harder than the data science side of things. Yeah. And so it sounds like you're really putting an exclamation mark on that and reminding people that AI is a team sport. We can't just hire a data scientist with a PhD from Carnegie Mellon and sit them in the middle of a R&D space or regulatory space and say, great, well, you can solve these problems now. We got to have those bilingual folks to get close to the problems and combine these new areas of expertise in order to deliver value, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly. That's right. That's Excellent. right. One other thing, may I add one more thing? Yeah, yeah, by all means. You, you got all the time. You know, I, th I think <clears throat> something that continues to get overlooked is just like, you know, when it comes to AI, it's garbage in, garbage out. Right. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. And so the quality of data that you expose that AI to 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 train it, it is critically important. And I think that, you know, in the industry, we've been tinkering with AI for a while now, but but I'm, I'm not sure that companies have made the necessary investments to get their data to a place where it's high quality, you know, usable productize so that they can do AI at scale. And I think, you know, this is something that pharma companies have to recognize is like, you got to make the investments in data to make this thing fly at scale. Big time. Well, that, that, that ties us right back to the first use case you mentioned around drug development and just how much of that undergirding work has to happen to see value bubble to the surface. So I'm glad you chipped in that extra idea ties us right back like a bow tie to the beginning of the interview. And Andrew, I know that's all we have for time, but I sincerely appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much for being here on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. Some brief highlights from today's episode. Low success rates and internal rates of return continue to plague R&D productivity in the pharmaceutical space, according to our guest. COVID revealed the art of the possible in biopharma, with Pfizer and Moderna developing vaccines in record time. It also accelerated digital transformations within pharmaceutical companies, shifting the mindset from status quo to innovation. AI presents an opportunity to redefine disease with the help of multimodal data. As mentioned in the introduction, protein structure prediction capabilities like AlphaFold can help chemists quickly prioritize potential candidate drugs. 
Life sciences leaders must be leveraging open source tools, historical lab notes, patient data, and ontology to start tackling the challenge of big data to predict protein interactions. Clinical trial patient recruitment challenges still persist, but there is great potential in AI to improve the protocol development process, including generating smart first drafts and dynamically updating associated documentation. While AI can't replace human oversight in drug development, generative AI can transform regulatory functions in pharmaceutical R&D, reducing manual documentation work and improving translation efficiency. For regulatory compliance, emerging and effective use cases include using AI to trim down regulatory time for translation and using historical data to improve engagement with regulators by anticipating their questions. In developing these systems, leveraging bilingual professionals who understand both AI and regulatory compliance make a tremendous difference in pharmaceutical R&D. On behalf of Daniel Figella, our CEO and head of research, as well as the rest of the team here at Emerge Technology Research, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI in Business Podcast.